Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Piron. I really enjoyed meeting Richard Poyatzi. Now that I've read his work and heard of him for really decades, there at Case Western University, where he is highly recognized and a distinguished university professor, and you'll hear all of his other titles in a moment. I thought, whoa, this is, what am I going to do here? He, he, he certainly outranks me. <laughs> By the end of this conversation, I feel like he's my friend, and I hope he feels the same way. He just puts you at ease and brings you into his story and shows interest in one's responses, mine now in particular. And I think that you're hearing a very smart teacher who is a gifted researcher and writer and thinker. All on my watch. Here is Richard Poyatzik. Folks, uh, I, I have uh, demonstrated over the many episodes of this podcast that uh, I love networking. I love people whose networks lead me to other people in other networks. And eventually I found uh, Richard Biazis in one of those webs, Richard. I'm not sure where I trapped you. <laughs> it wasn't the dark web, that we know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a light web. It was a happy yeah, web. Right, right. But it, it is a way that uh, a study of practice works because it's such a big word and such a big question that I will probably be looking to meet wonderful people like Richard for at least my next 10 years, which would make me 90. <laughs> After that, Richard, I might taper off on the podcasting, right. but it's great. And and uh, I would love to introduce Richard with all of his uh, practice as titles, but I have a very difficult time with my short-term memory. So Richard, introduce all those great titles, starting with the distinguished professor, because I think that was terrific. Thank you, Dave. I'm a distinguished university professor at Case Western Reserve University. I'm also a professor in the departments of organizational behavior and psychology and cognitive science. And I have an endowed chair, the H. Clark Board Professorship. And mostly I do my research in, well, it's indicated by the fact that I publish in about seven different fields from medicine and dentistry psychology, education, management, all that. Um, my main position is based in the School of Management, and I teach leadership and emotional intelligence and coaching. And um, My main research interest since 1967, when I left the aeronautics and astronautics field and designing interplanetary vehicles to get into psychology, has been intentional change theory or a variation of that basic theory. Uh -huh. And a lot around coaching. And in the past 15 years, I've done um, a certain amount of that, not just behavioral research and longitudinal, but also neuroimaging studies. So I've become uh, a neuroscientist as well. 
boring. No, okay. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Unbelievable. No, and um, and seven keeps different, me busy. It's definitely different fields and all of those things. Uh, yeah, I, what I heard at the end was what might be the silver thread that's run through all these years. Then, uh, not just the aeronautical aspect of, but that notion of change. Yeah, I mean, I um, I was since the time I was nine, I wanted to be in the space program, and uh, despite the three times at PS 150 in Queens, they tried to leave me back because they thought I was cognitively slow for all sorts oh, of reasons. Oh, did they um, mess up on that one? And well, including <laughs> including that in 1949 and 50, if you spoke with I spoke with a Greek accent, even though I was born in Brooklyn, but I, uh, and I could read Greek letters, but I couldn't read English letters and. In those days, that was coded as um, a cognitive retardation, not multiculturalism. But at any rate, so Sputnik went up. I got tested, and it turns out I was really good in math and physics. So I was in this. By then, we had moved out to Nassau County, Long Island. It was in a working class community. They had this phenomenal public school system, absolutely phenomenal, because it had a lot of money from an Air Force base and a county jail and county hospital and all sorts of stuff. But I ended up getting two years of college while I was in high school. And it was the beginning of what we now know as the AP program. Yeah. So I wanted to get into the space program and I got into my first choice, MIT, and was doing my, uh, I majored in control systems of interplanetary vehicles, but I ran out of money. I mean, my father was a waiter. My parents had immigrated to the U.S. and um. And he got me a job doing research in the Experimental Dynamics Research Lab at Northrop Norair in oh, yeah. uh, L.A. And that was in 1966. And what I learned, and they, they gave us a job for about six months. And, you know, it was a full-fledged job. And if you saved your money, you, along with some scholarships and all that, you'd have enough to finish, which is exactly what happened. But in the process, what I learned was I didn't like actually doing the work. Uh-oh. It was it was boring. <laughs> and I got back to MIT and I, you know, I'm much too compulsive not to finish. So, in fact, I finished my aero and astro. So I only had two technical. Um, but I said, you know, I don't want to do this, even though they'd offered us jobs. And two of my fraternity brothers that had been out there with me, in fact, did get job offers and did go into the field, although not for Northrop. I didn't want to go to the restaurant business, which every Greek male I knew, every family member, all of my parents, friends on this side of the Atlantic were in the restaurant business in New York. And although I put myself partially through MIT with my music earnings, um, I, I didn't think I was quite good enough to really make a go of it. So I think, what am I going to do? And I said, I got it. I'll go into management. It's got to be easy. Look at these idiots we had at Northrop. Oh. I mean, I was in one of two <laughs> experimental research units. And to describe it is to say these were two departments of Sheldon's. I mean, everybody was either smart or scary smart, but we were all weird and yeah. socially um, backward. Yeah. And the managers were, too. And they got so little out of us. So I decided <laughs> to take some management courses and I. And there were only a few courses at MIT that didn't have prerequisites because at this point I'm, fin- I'm in my junior year, finishing mm-hmm. my junior year. And one of them was 
uh, described in an intro by this young professor who was finishing his PhD, actually hadn't finished it at that moment, called Organizational Psychology. And his name was David Kolb, who most Kolb. people know from experiential learning fame. Kolb I mean, I was there McIntyre. in his office when, yeah, that's right, Kolb and McIntyre. When they they created that first book, I was there when he created in his office experiential learning theory. Wow! And the the subject of the course sounded to me like utter bullcrap. I mean, it was uh -huh. organizational psychology. Yeah. But he said two words in his description that made me run to the basement to get into his class because everything was oversubscribed, and the two words were no tests. So oh, come on. I, I'd like to point out that the, the major twists in our life path sometimes are affected by things that don't yeah. make sense. Anyway, it was during that course that I wanted to do a project, a paper on how managers didn't help their subordinates. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I've got some real data on how our their version of the MBA, 28 to 30 year olds, were helping each other or not, that they'd been collecting every week over um, several semesters. So I said, sure, I'd love to actually work with real data. He loved what I did, even though I was new to this whole field of working with words. And social science statistics to me were like baby arithmetic compared to the kind of stuff that I was used to. Yeah. But nonetheless, I slogged through it. He offered me a job for the summer. We ended up publishing the paper. And in the process, he Dave got me into um, PhD seminars with Ed Schein, who became one of my mentors. Yes. And Dave McClellan, who became my thesis advisor at Harvard. And you know, I also studied with Carl Swanson and Jack Pugh, who were in the um, Forrester's Systems Dynamics Group. Mm -hmm. So it was a phenomenal thing. And they are the ones who convinced me to go for a doctorate, go into psychology, and they helped me get into Harvard. So, but the very first study was on helping but it was helping around behavior change. And yeah. in the spring of 67, Dave Kolb and I laid out the first versions of what I've spent my life studying, which is I now call intentional change theory. What a story, Richard. Uh, uh, here's my, uh, my take so far. Each of those people, Dave Kolb and each of the others you've named, all saw something in you. And here's my guess. They saw limitless interest and curiosity and intellect. They didn't feel they were going to bump up against uh, aspects of your outlook that would waste their time. And so you were able to move pretty much freely from MIT uh, numbers on on blackboards back then, and and, and equations to, uh, I think penetra penetrating discussions about why people refuse to change or or do. Yeah. So I I think Thanks. they saw they saw and I'm you know when we first started talking today, this the all the different areas that your your books are reaching all the different um, twists good twists in regard to uh, what you're going to look at next where you know, all of that, I think they saw in you back then. Do you want to well, dispute thank that? You. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I've heard from them over each of them over the years and for many of them before they died that yes, um, it was something like that. 
uh, they saw a huge curiosity. Yes. They saw a relentless desire to work. Um, and even though I had not been in a verbal field, I mean, Edstein's first feedback to me, I mean, on the first paper I did for his PhD seminar was amazing because he, he asked me to come into his office because he couldn't understand the sentences I written. I wasn't used to writing in sentences. Uh, and <laughs> so, and I think part of it was I was an oddity. And actually, the folks at the uh, Department of Social Relations at Harvard said, yeah, I mean, we're interested in you. Um, they were interested in me, but not so much to give me money. But they said, if, you know, I said, hey, you let me in, I'll find the money. Um, you know, so I put myself through that program, too. But the the point, I think, was that um, when I was in interpersonal settings, I could use, really carry my own. And people didn't know that I wasn't a PhD student as long as I wore my tie and sport coat, which is what we wore in those days, the graduate seminars, um, even though I hadn't been in the field before. And I just, I think part of it's the whole kind of, child of immigrants is I was ready to just work my rear end off. And, um, and I was socially not quite up to my age. So I think I was nerdy enough that um, I really dove into things and worked at it. But I've always suspected it was all of that plus and this is what I really got refined at MIT. If I don't worry about the isms and social identities, I'm really a social engineer. I study things that don't seem right or need to be better or need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the whole first 10 years of my work as a psychologist, I was working on competencies, but I was the main activity was doing therapy with alcoholics and drug addicts and doing basic research on the effect of alcohol on on males and trying to figure out why it got some males to get into fights and show aggression and um, and a bunch of things like that. But the the puzzle was always how do people change? Yeah. And interesting, it, my theory is the only that I know of fractal theory. Because, in fact, in the book I'm writing now, trying to encapsulate my 56 years of research on this, I'm trying to explain how intentional change theory explains sustained desire change for individuals, dyads, teams, organizations, communities, and countries. And, I mean, even in my doctoral um, exams, I did it on individual change and unconscious drives and personality and on organizational change. Yeah. So it's always fascinated me, not only how do individuals change themselves, but the systems that we're a part of. And it's yeah. that systems perspective that, I mean, I really owe to all of my training and mindset that I learned at MIT. Yeah. I mean, it was clear to me, even when I was doing therapy and training therapists to work with alcoholics, that if you didn't help people fix there or rebuild their family system or their yeah. work system. Yeah. They were going to be back drinking or using within months. Within months. Yeah. 
It's very it's much systems. So. Yeah. And today, w- one of the, the study groups I just started three years ago um, was because I'd ended my intentional change study group and ended the coaching study group. And I, and I had a whole bunch of doctoral students and some former doctoral students who are now faculty who wanted to study peer coaching in groups. Hmm. And it's an area that has had very little empirical research, even though it's been around since time immemorial. Yeah. Um, and again, inspired by things like Alcoholics Anonymous. But the idea is fundamentally that while everybody wants to be developed, and in fact, it's perhaps the major drive that people have these days in terms of work, that training doesn't have much of a lasting effect because of the honeymoon effect. You know, three weeks to three months and you're back the way you were. Formal education doesn't have much sticking power in terms of competencies. No. Developmental assignments can work, but they're horribly wasteful. So coaching has become very, very popular. Yeah. And the practice has exceeded the research to say we know what we're doing. Well, even if the coaching is working, one-on-one coaching is very costly and labor-intensive. And it becomes very elitist. So how do we democratize coaching? How do we offer coaching to the millions of people and organizations that don't have an assigned coach from HR because they're not executives? Or how do we reach the billions of people who aren't even in organizations with more than 50 people around the world? That's where I think understanding the dynamics of peer coaching in groups and making it helpful, not just you know, complaining bitch sessions yeah. um, could hold the promise for a, a whole new wave of development. Oh, I love that. I love, I love the feel of it. I love your, your enthusiasm for it. And uh, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a rural state, <clears throat> Maine, and uh, in around the same time as you did, uh, you know, 40s, 50s schooling. Uh, but it struck me as I was as I was listening and I was kind of feeling what you were saying about peer coaching is that um, that just happened as a, as a matter of fact. There's a sense of community. Uh, where, was, where in Maine did you grow up? In Portland. Oh, yeah. it was a big city. Big. Well, yeah, but it was a small now, town. And, and, right. and the thing is, it, it, here's the key to it. It, it was um, listening. Now, maybe I'm you know, imposing this on a whole generation, but I have a feeling that what we did better back then, because we had so few distractions, we had a little bit of radio noise in the background, and you'd go to a movie, but you'd have to walk down the street to get to it. So in the meantime, what did you have? You had conversation. And uh, and it was, uh, it was fun because you would say, well... Um, how are you doing? That was the way it started. Oh, Jesus, I'll tell you, I had a rough night. You know, oh, you've been drinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so we were peers and we listened to each yeah, other. Right. <laughs> no, I, it, I think. And it was an egalitarian kind of state back then, you know, because there were very few people of great wealth, very few. And we didn't know poor because from time to time, <laughs> my parents would you know, not have enough to pay, you know, this bill. So they'd pay that right. one, you know, all of that. So we just had a, a, a an environment where we could accept the a responsibility of listening well, to each other. 
So you you experienced and you discovered what every community Mm -hmm. and in particular rural or semi-rural communities have, which is each other. Yeah. And whether the organizing vehicle is a local church or in some countries, a temple or mosque, Mm -hmm. or it is just people reaching out to each other. I mean, I, I used to do a lot of um, a lot of the therapy in Vermont, in northern Vermont, as well as other places. And my wife and I have always spent a lot of time vacationing and sailing out of Acadia and Southwest Harbor and all the way up and down the coast of Maine. Yeah. And boy, you get I mean, if you think about Portland when you were growing up, then you think about East Craftsbury you know, uh, an hour drive on a dry day north of Montpelier in uh, in Vermont or, you know, going up to Orono and then heading out for a, an hour northeast. To you know, to you're Bar-Haba. in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you have except other people? So exactly. one, you learned to build relationships and keep them. And Absolutely. a part of that was listening. You're right. But keep the relationships were the key. I would also contend that because you didn't have access to a lot of external stimulation like the internet or podcasts, mm-hmm. you spent more time daydreaming oh, yeah. and thinking. And as a result, I think it garners a different level of self-discipline, of creativity. It does. And I, 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 uh, I would, I would, throw into this into the uh, the stew here about uh importance of getting to know each other and keeping those relationships uh stories yeah. and i expect right. that, i'm sure that's crossed your your pages many times but it, the other thing that kept us um going in a way was our uh through given the time to use our imaginations was the good old main tall tale yep. to learn how to um, take something that others would look at as ordinary and say, well, to you, it's a turtle, you know, but let me tell yeah. you about, let me tell you about that turtle. And, 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 and I, I was raised on that and that infused my teaching and my writing uh, ever since uh, that what the story would do though, is it would draw people in. Yeah. And then if they became part of your story and we became part of their story, like now I'm, I'm, I'm the story of Farmington, Maine, which is where I was a Dean uh, right. public service for a number of years. That's sort of uh, helped us through the rough times too. Well, uh, and the key to the stories that they invoke emotions. Yes. And it's one of the mistakes we make these days in, and and I think Descartes really did us a disservice by pushing us to thinking that the analytic part of the human brain and spirit was the key. And in fact, I think it was a combination of the analytic and the emotional. Um, but you're right. Stories are the way we talk to each other. I mean, and, and of course, uh, for Maine, there was the Bert and I uh <laughs> loved love motor uh, love motor cars any color as long as they're black 
<laughs> Which way to win a pedlock? <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 guy got a nice he got a nice buck out of that whole thing. And I said, why is he making money at it when this is what we do just to get through the day? <laughs> right, right, right. It was unfair, but uh, that was it was good. And and I I understand. And I think you and I both have uh, sensed what it value of being in small town. And being, you know, northern Vermont, where my daughter lives in in Stowe, and and yeah. uh, and we were the kids were raised in Farmington, which was Western Maine, on the same line as. Uh, oh yeah, I know, I know. One of my good friends' grandsons, oldest grandson, just graduated there two years ago. Oh, nice. Well, I you yeah, know, I worked at that school, so I I think that that um, the the neat thing about this conversation, Richard, is while you're working on what I think will be a a fantastic book where you're trying to bring the Thank fractals you. together uh, about uh, intentional change. Uh, we both light up with our own personal experiences. And to me, right. and let me just jump real quickly to the big uh, boogie man and woman person, whatever in the room, it's not even a person. It's, it's that, it's that uh, chat bot thing and the artificial intelligence. And so while it can assemble, a paper or you name it, it'll look very much like it was written by a human. It look, you know, it it doesn't have that in it. What is it missing? It it's it missing what you and I call the common touch, you know, our, our own uh, putting our own uh, feelings there. into it. It's absolutely it's without soul. feeling, without soul, nothing. It's vapid. I, I did so, my PhD thesis on unconscious intimacy drives. Oh, wow. David McClellan. I created a new theory of affiliation, motivation. Growing up in a Greek culture, I saw relationships and friendships and intimacy differently than a lot of my uh, American friends did. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happened, actually, it was because of a um, historical radio show that I was asked the year after I finished my thesis. So it was 1974. I was asked to do... Um, a radio discussion group in Burlington, Vermont. There you go. And I ended up doing it there. And then somebody from Boston picked it up. I did it again in Cambridge. And I called the talk, The Destruction of Intimacy in America. This is 1974. But I felt that we had stopped sitting around talking after dinner. We didn't have the traditional European passeggiata where after dinner you'd go for a walk in the community and talk to people on their sitting on their steps. And I blamed 1974, I blamed TV and box games for creating that <laughs> distance. Now, this was before the internet, before yes. iPhones, way before Facebook and social media. Way but I I would say psychologically, we know from the research that's published every month that the more people rely on social media, email, texting, all that, the more they suffer from chronic anxiety and even depression. And we see this not just we saw it starting and ramping up pre-COVID, but COVID made it worse because of all the social isolation. That's right. So the net result is that. These electronic-aided things get, create the illusion of more social interaction when, in fact, they're missing the depth and quality and consistency of interacting with the same people 
over time. Yeah. Consistency so, is, is the key. Consistency, yeah. you know, and we also have this temp, you know, remember the book, the temporary society was written oh, yeah. when I was in college and, and all of that. And I remember reading it and, and I was a sociology major at Colby college. And I remember them saying, Oh, what I grew up in permanence, you know, and, and a temporary yeah. society was all now, now we have the gig economy. Now we yeah. have, uh, people who, uh, because of the pandemic, well, <clears throat> uh, are walking away from their jobs because it's so. Okay, a, so let's this let's be careful because issue. it it's so easy for you know you said you're eighty I'm seventy six it's so easy for us to be old fogies and say well you know the world is going to hell in a handbasket yeah, these God days. Damn it. <laughs> um, um, although I do like the songs of Lady Gaga and Taylor Swift, so I don't know about the music critique, but. But the, one of the points I made in this talk was that the real threat to our social fabric was not the in, dramatically increasing divorce rate, was not the breakup of the nuclear family. It was the breakup of the extended family. It was as people moved away from That's their it. aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents, we lost these connections that went multi-generations. That even though sometimes it would get a bit incestuous in terms of the, you know, everybody knows your business, um, mm -hmm. but you always knew people you could count on. That's right. And there was, I, even though some of them were stern and strict and not nice, there were always some of them that were. So I think that back then was pretty bad. Now we know it's even worse, um, especially in North American society, including Canadian, uh, because we don't tend to live near our extended families. No, no. Uh, well, yeah, uh, no, I will, you know, throw out a, an impossibly complex, complicated qu question to answer and even to ask here in our last few minutes. And uh, it means I'm I'm working for a sequel already for our conversation, Richard. But <laughs> the question is, all right, knowing what we have just said, uh, how uh, atomized uh, life in at least the Western world is right now, what can be done to turn that around and put people back together again? David is one of the most simple answers. It's a complex question, but the answer is simple. Talk to people. But it's <laughs> not just talk to people, care about them. In yeah. the last chapter in our last book, Helping People Change, we talked about the techniques of coaching with compassion, of whether you're a parent or a manager, not just formal coaching, but helping people, this technique that we owe through compassion, not through uh, compliance. And I wanted to tackle something in the last chapter, and I, at the first draft of it, I titled it Get Over Yourself, and my co-authors, Melvin Smith and Elvin Osten, said, no, 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 that's much too negative. The whole book is very positive, and the editor at Harvard Business Review Press said the same thing. So, but here's the point that we began with. So our society, and actually this can apply to every society, I've been in, what, eight countries in the last year and a half, and in different continents, and we're all very similar. We've become rampant narcissists, all of us. And if you ever doubt it, when did the selfie become the most popular form of photography? <laughs> 
So what's the antidote? Well, it turns out the antidote, and we know this from our own fMRI neurological studies, the antidote is to be in caring conversations with people. And it doesn't mean you have to become a social worker, but you have to care. You have to care whether they're in pain or they want to grow. And as you said at the beginning, that all always involves listening because it's focused on them, not you. Yeah. And other people don't exist to be instruments of your self-exploration. Yeah. So what we thought is if everybody tried to have two or three 10 to 15 minute conversations each week in which you ask the other person about their dreams, about their values, about who helped them, about what they're looking forward to, about, you know, even as playful as what would you do with 80 million after tax if you won it in the lottery, <laughs> that if we have those conversations, even in 15 minute doses, we spark in my theory and the physiology part of the parasympathetic nervous system because we're activating a neural network called technically the default mode network. And one of the key parts of the brain that we stimulate in this, and we showed it in one of our studies, is the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, this thing back here that is the key crosswalk that Naomi Eisenberger and other neuroscientists have shown is the network in the brain that's set off when you're interacting with other people. Yep. And when you're interacting with them, in which you're actually paying attention to them and their emotions, it sets off the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the only antidote to stress, which is the place in your body's hormonal system in which you're open to others and new ideas. So if we each did that, again, short doses, we don't have to sit down or lie down on a couch. This is stuff over lunch or drinks or coffee breaks. Mm -hmm. And we encourage other people to have those conversations. Can you imagine how we would create an antidote to the feelings of fear and isolation? I mean, that's what narcissism is. It's a defensive posture. Yeah. You know, you're asserting yourself because you feel that either you're worthless or nobody else cares about you. So if we encourage people to do that, to go back to the kind of conversations you were talking about, walking on the street on the way to a movie yeah. in um in Portland or Farmington or any place. Yep. You know, that that ends up being, because what you said when you talked about that conversation, you said, one person said, well, how are you doing? Yep. And the other person answered them honestly. Yeah. That was a caring day. conversation. It was. And, and I'm delighted to know that with all of your wonderful thought and research over all these years, and with the people with whom you've worked, that you've come to uh, answer the, my final question of the conversation today with care, care for, care for each other. Right. Right. It's like, as you said, it's a simple answer to a complicated thing. And I, I'm, I'm going to second the motion and uh, make sure when I post this, this podcast that I, do my little bit of preaching about it because I know oh, it works. Yeah. I know it works. I believe it to the to my core. 
John Lennon was right. <laughs> John, John was, he, he knew how to get to us and, and yeah. uh, yeah. And, and in many ways he was right. And, 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 uh, and, and I think, let me add this, this codicil that people who write music these days uh, with a caring nature uh, and, and want their message to come out through their, their music uh very helpful to us uh and yeah. I, I saw a a little um excerpt of an interview with willie nelson who is one of my mm. my heroes because he's my age and he's still performing mm. and he said you know i've been everywhere and met hundreds of thousands of people and he said basically people are a lot alike this is willie and he said my music draws them in so i get to meet them but when I ask them, what is it about my song or my music? They say, oh, it just, you just sing into me, Willie. You, you make right. me feel like I belong. And, and I, and I see one guy with a beat up old guitar. Granted, he's got a bit of an infrastructure to support him, but I, I used his book in my last course that I taught before I retired in 2016 for my innovation class. I said, read this book. And, I want to point out one particular paragraph in this whole book about this very successful human being who's lived a lot of different uh, ups and downs. They ask him, you know, when the IRS takes away all your wealth and they have and, and your farms and your cars and everything else. And Willie, Willie said, well, I still have my guitar and I can still make up songs. And that was my point to my students. You. I Whatever you get through, be sure you don't give up the one or two things that you can do no matter what. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you're a wonderful, distinguished professor and a wonderful, Thank a you. wonderful Must person. Must have been a great course. Then. I think it was. <laughs> Thank you very much, Richard. And let's, let's, you know, I want a sequel. <laughs> hey, if Rocky could go six movies, we could certainly do two or three. I don't know about those stairs, though, Richard. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you again. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast slash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, oh, how could I have forgotten? Our digital book on practice as a way of being is now available. You'll find it online at www.mylibrary.world. I worked on that book after Peter passed away, and I think you will find it a unique and very, very mobile reading experience, since it's wherever your screen is in hand or at hand.